ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon and happy National Agriculture Day. Selena Green with you on this Friday. In just a sec, you'll hear what well, about the European Union's decision on the use of the weed killer glyphosate and what this could all mean for Australia. And Australian Grain Technologies has just snapped up a substantial bit of property in South Australia's north. You'll hear what they plan to do with it. One of the things that was great was we bought that land and the feedback from some of the local growers was really positive. Um, you know, we were really keen. We don't want to be competing for land, but at the same time, we know we need it. More on that shortly. My talkback number today, 1300 222891 and the text line 0467 922891. And you might like to use those numbers to let me know your thoughts on this first story today. And that is that the European Union has made a decision to extend approval to use weed killer glyphosate for another 10 years. Now, the decision followed an earlier assessment by the European Food Safety Authority, which found no critical areas of concern. But farmers were worried a ban was on the cards. However, there will be new conditions and restrictions, such as maximum application rates. Shona Gabble is Chief Executive of Grain Growers, says Australian growers will welcome this news. It is good news for Australian growers um, that the decision has been made by the EU to extend this approval. Uh, and, and there's a few reasons behind that. But at the end of the day, it means that uh, farmers overseas are able to continue using the weed management tools that they require. And what would it have meant for Australian growers if the approval for glyphosate in the EU wasn't extended? I don't like to speculate on, on exactly what it would have meant because we'd have had to look at that closely when the decision was, was announced. But, you know, what I can put forward is that there would, with EU restrictions, uh, that would impact on our imports. There's also other countries uh, that look and watch the EU fairly closely. So, so we would uh, suspect that that would mean that they might start to reflect the EU requirements um, and that there'd be barriers put in place around uh, the, the chemical usage elsewhere. Okay, so clearly glyphosate is a, a big part of production systems in Australia and there would be concern that if if other countries outlawed it, they would also outlaw the importation of products uh, produced in, in glyphosate-based systems? That's right. So it is a, it is technology that's really enabled Australian farmers uh, to put in some good sustainability practices as well, Angus. So we've seen uh, the improvements with no-till and minimum-till farming practices because of the use of glyphosate. And it's also an industry where we've been, um, you know, good stewards of chemical use. We've got a lot of training, chemical training that growers undertake. We've got a science-based regulator um, and there's, there's strong compliance with the product usage as well here in Australia. Let's look a bit more at the decision by the Commission. There was a vote or an, an attempt at a vote last month to get a, uh, a, a qualified majority, as it's called, 15 of the, the EU's 27 member countries uh, to approve the, the extension. That vote failed at the time. This time around, three key states, France, Germany, Italy, all, all sat out, abstained from voting. So sounds like a, a pretty tenuous decision that's just got over the line. Is that concerning? 
It's been re-approved for 10 years, so I, I think that that shows the, the solidness behind the decision there, Angus. Because the last time it was approved, it was only an 18 or 12-month extension, wasn't it, which I think did create a lot of concerns about what would happen when this decision-making time came around. That's right. And I mean, at the end of the day, the reapproval really, um, as I said earlier, it allows those those farmers in the EU to keep accessing a, a really important technology um, for their, their weed management. This European Commission approval has come with conditions and restrictions, I believe, such as maximum application rates. I don't have much detail on that, but do you do you have any more information? I don't have much more detail on that, but it is something that um, we are looking at um, and, and trying to understand what those restrictions are. Um, but you're right, we, we've heard a few things around uh, spray nozzles and um, yeah, chemical barriers there, so we'll be keeping a close eye on that one. That could be really problematic, couldn't it? Because, I mean, we know that chemicals need to be used at, at recommended rates, and if they're used under those rates, they can have, have poor efficacy. So this could... If those maximum application rates are quite low, it could almost be something of a, a soft ban, couldn't it? I wouldn't like to comment on, on the application process or, or what the restrictions are, Angus, because I'm not across them fully myself. Um, and it's also from a, an EU farming um, management practice perspective. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it and, and look at what, what they're putting in place there. But it's certainly something that we'll continue to, to look at here and make sure that the Australian farming practices and chemical usage is understood by our communities. It's a difficult one for for consumers to understand, isn't it? When we've got various uh, organisations of in positions of authority that have different positions on on glyphosate and whether it is or isn't safe, and whether it is or or isn't carcinogenic. When you have, uh, for example, the Australian regulator saying it's not carcinogenic, but then that that uh, announcement from the World Health Organisation several years ago saying it probably was carcinogenic. How does the consumer make sense of that? I, I think um, Australian consumers and our customers internationally, uh, just to, to understand the, the, the rigour that our regulator puts in place, I know that the Australian uh, pesticides and veterinary medicine scientists, they've reviewed close to 4,800 peer-reviewed articles and data sets around glyphosate usage. So I think we, we have to trust the science and our experiences with COVID over the past few years have, have certainly shown that uh, as, a, as a nation, we, we trust our scientists, we know the, the fine work that we do. And I think when it comes to that community perception, that, that we know that we've got an independent regulator there that is overseeing the chemicals that are used on Australian farms. And on that point about independence, what we see uh, from Europe is that a lot of these decisions seem to be based in politics rather than on science. Are you confident that, that in Australia uh, the, the, uh, that science will continue to win out and that politics won't, won't rule over facts? I, I'm very confident that, that Australia, um, with its science-based uh, regulator, that will continue with that. And I suppose the other point, Shona, I mean... Farmers do use chemicals that, that aren't safe, but they just have to use them uh, in the right way, don't they? Make sure that they follow those, those, those handling guidelines. Angus, it's it's really important that, that chemicals are used according to label directions um, and requirements there. It's a little bit like when we've got our family pets at home. If we were to give a flea treatment and, um, you know, the chemicals that are used in that, we do it because we, we love our, our pets and want to keep them safe and, and secure. But if we were to take a chemical like that and use it 
um, outside of the way that the label dictates, then it would it would be harmful. So that's it's the same approach when it comes to the use of chemicals on farm that growers uh, have training, chemical training, and they use it in compliance with the label. Shona Gavel there, Chief Executive of Grain Growers, speaking to Angus Verley. And keep an eye on the ABC Rural website for more on this story as the day goes. It is 13 minutes past 12. Well, a parcel of land northwest of Gawler has been snapped up by Australian Grain Technologies as a way to shore up its breeding trials. The property at Wosley's reduces AGT's need to rely on leased land for its research. And AGT's CEO, Hayden Cookle, says it was a perfectly situated piece of real estate for their research? Yes, we've just bought about 105 hectares uh, of a paddock just north of Wosley's, which is in the sort of lower north uh, area of South Australia, about sort of 60 to 70 k's north of Adelaide. And why were you keen to snap this property up? So we run uh, our breeding trials all around Australia. Uh, one of our major sites is at Roseworthy. Uh, we're on the University of Adelaide campus land. Uh, They've got a farm there that we lease each year and we're using about 100 to 150 hectares every year just for trials and uh, it's a really great place to breed from because what we're looking for is an environment that uh, never completely fails because when you're running a breeding program you can't lose all your seed but at the same time we need something that's really similar to the environment we're breeding for so has soil constraints you know salinity and sedicity and boron toxicity and the like but also suffers some heat stress and drought stress and Roseworthy does that but in a reasonably safe environment so it's a great place to breed from and uh, look basically we're needing more and more land because we're breeding wheat and barley and lupin and durum and canola now and we needed some more land and so we'll continue on at the Roseworthy Farm, but also now we've got this property just north of Wosley's, which is only about sort of five to ten k's up the road. Right, and this one ticks all the boxes of all those things you just mentioned there that you're looking for? Yeah, look, it's beautiful uh, from our point of view. Um, Like I said, we're looking for something which is stressed consistently, but at the same time, you know, we're going to harvest seed each year. and, And so this is just part of AGT. You know, we've been breeding now for 21 years and uh, we breed for all of Australia, but this is, I guess, one of the this is one of the places we came from, the Roseworthy um, campus, as our sort of origins, and uh, it's worked well for us. So we're really excited to have this piece of land accessible to us that we can manage in a rotation that means that we can breed even better varieties for farmers in the future because varieties like Scepter and Calibre that lots of farmers in South Australia are growing and Tomahawk, uh, which is a new clearfield we've just released, for example, all of those are being bred uh, using data coming from the Roseworthy site. So this new property is is just going to really help us to be able to run even more trials, breed better varieties and make sure growers have got the access uh, to the best varieties um, that they need. Because I understand uh, some of the work that you're already doing is on leased property as well. So there's an obvious advantage as well to to owning a property that you're going to be put crops, putting crops into for research as well? Yeah, it's true. Look, um, the university are great to us. Uh, you know, sometimes breeders, we, we have sort of a different perspective on, on land than a grower. You know, the grower, uh, you know, is obviously trying to look after their land for the long term and, and get the most out of it. Uh, but at times we have to do things like spray a high rate of a herbicide to check for tolerance, which is going to have an impact the next year, right? So that's not great for growers if we're doing that on their property. So it's good 
that we can do that at the university land, but now that we've got our own land, we can um, do that even more easily. Uh, but also it means we can set up the rotation to make sure that we don't have barley, for example, uh, at all having any chance of landing in our wheat seed increase because growers don't want barley in their wheat seed, right? So that's the sort of thing that by having complete control of, of, uh, of the land and having ownership over it, it really just means that we're able to do an even better job uh, for the growers going forward. You mentioned there before some of the different varieties that you are uh, trialling as well. So there's quite a few different crops that AGT is, is uh, researching and trialling at the moment. Yeah, so that's another big part of this because um, you can imagine, so for us to run trials, we can't run our trials on top of themselves. We have to leave a break for a few years because the effect of our trials lasts for a few years, right? Uh, so that's bad enough if you're just breeding wheat. But now that we're breeding barley and lupin and durum and canola as well, uh, in particular canola in this area, we've really ramped up our breeding program, trying to deliver open pollinated varieties for farmers so they don't have to buy seed every year. And so that canola breeding, it needs access to land as well uh, for breeding. And so uh, that's just expanded what we need access uh, to, the amount of land. Uh, and so, yeah, we need a bit more flexibility to make sure that we've always got the right land for each of those crops. Um, yeah, but it's exciting and it's been really good to be able to have that. And one of the things that was great was we bought that land and the feedback from some of the local growers was really positive. Um, you know, we were really keen. We don't want to be competing for land, but at the same time, we know we need it. And uh, I think some of the feedback we had from growers just sort of saying, it's just great to see AGT investing for the long term, uh, knowing that we're going to continue breeding varieties uh, into the future. Um, so it was really nice to hear that from people. And why, at the end of the day, is this all good news for, for South Australian farmers, that you're able to continue and expand what you're doing? Uh, plant breeding is like a numbers game. It's like you're flipping a whole bunch of coins in the air and you want them all to land on heads. And... Uh, the more times you can flip those coins in the air, the more likely you get them to land the right way up, right? So that means we need to run big populations uh, to be able to perform more selection to find that jam or the needle in the haystack, find that unique individual um, that is that is the one. And, and, you know, when you breed a variety like Scepter, which was a bit of a step change at the time, it's just one out of um, hundreds of thousands of genotypes, hundreds of thousands of potential varieties, and it's the only one that met that standard. So... Uh, if we're able to run our trials more confidently, larger, then it means that we're able to deliver even better improvements in the future for yield, disease resistance, quality and the like. So, yeah, it's all about giving growers better varieties in the future. That is the CEO of Australian Grain Technologies, Hayden Cookle, speaking there. It's 19 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Tins of chickpeas may be collecting dust on pantry shelves across the country, but the humble legume is putting Australia on the world map. Megan Hughes has this report. According to a recent report by the United States Department of Agriculture, Australia is the largest exporter of chickpeas in the world, with around one-third of the global exports spanning the past 10 years. But holding this top spot isn't enough for the industry. They're pushing for more international market access and back home trying to get Aussies to eat more chickpeas. They're exceptionally healthy. They're, they're low GI, high fibre, really dense protein, and of course they, they come with a pretty good multi-thousand-year wrap in terms of their reliability and it's a component of human diet. And so what we've, we tend to find in Australia is we're finding pulse pasta. There's a lot of snack foods that, have, that are now including pulse flowers and uh, right through to ready-made meals and then using pulses along with animal protein to extend 
that meal. So whether it's a chicken and, and lentil dish or a, you know, a chicken and chickpea type dish. That's Chair of Grains Australia's Pulse Council, Peter Wilson. Australia grows two varieties of chickpeas, the Desi chickpea, which is primarily exported, and that's used for things like the Pulse pastas, and the Kabuli chickpea, which is the tinged chickpea you buy in supermarkets. Australia may hold the world's largest chickpea exporter title, but India grows the most and also eats the most. And up until 2017, most of Australia's chickpeas went to India. But that year, India introduced tariffs to reduce imports, effectively ending the trade. That trade was worth over a billion US dollars, and it had a big hit back home. Comparatively, that year, Australia grew more than 2 million tonnes of the crop. And in 2023, the national crop is below 500,000 tonnes. But Aussie chickpeas have found other homes. We've been happily satisfying demand into Bangladesh and into Pakistan. They've been significant destinations for Australian Desi chickpeas, as well as Jebel Ali in uh, the Middle East. And some of that would have would end up in Iran. Iran historically is a, is a large destination for Australian desis, but it can't go indirectly. Uh, it goes in indirectly via um, Jebel Ali in in, uh, in Dubai. The market access work the industry is doing is aimed at getting more Australian-grown chickpeas into snack foods and manufactured products domestically and offshore, and also one day to get back into the Indian market. Chickpeas were left off the free trade agreement that came into force in December last year, but Mr Wilson still has hope. As the, the country, the population continues to grow and you, you see some of the pressure on agricultural areas because of the industrialisation, the urbanisation, we think that we'll, uh, it will create the environment for some more partnerships in the area of um, you know, getting more of our desis back into India because they were by, by far and away the largest destination market for Australian desi chickpeas. Back home in Australia, chickpeas are grown right across the country, from Queensland to South and Western Australia, with the bulk of the crop grown north of Dubbo in New South Wales. They were first introduced to Australia in Gundawindi in southern Queensland in the 1970s and have since picked up in popularity. Raymond Wilkie grows them at his property near Biloela in central Queensland, choosing them for a variety of reasons, including their reputation as a drought-hardy crop. They're a dryland crop, so no irrigation. Typical legume, I suppose, they don't like wet feet. Chickpeas can establish from up to... 250 mil deep, so that's 10 inches in the old school, um, which nothing else will establish being planted that deep. So when you're running low on surface moisture, they're, they're the perfect opportunity. And being a tap-rooted plant, from that point on, they'll keep going and searching and foraging for that deep moisture. From planting in early May to harvest in October, his crop of chickpeas only had 55 millimetres of rain on it. But Mr Wilkie says he's happy with the results. It was a pretty dry start for them. We harvested them about three weeks ago and they ended up doing pretty much bang on two and a half tonne of the hectare, which we were really happy with. And once your chickpeas are harvested, what happens with them? This year... We stored them all on farm, so they're all on our storage and they've all been contracted to go to Gladstone Port, buyer's call, so that will hopefully be November, December, sometime whenever the ship's pencilled in to come in and we'll deliver them straight over to Gladstone. A central Queensland grower, Raymond Wilkie, ending that report from Megan Hughes and you can head to the ABC Rural website to read more about that story right now.
Uh, back in January, Menindi residents were told to remain on high alert for flooding as the swollen Darling River continued to rise. Residents worked to reinforce levees. They were told the water, as they were told, the water level would break the 1976 record of 10.7 metres. It didn't happen, but properties were lost in that flooding event, as you may remember. Well, now Water New South Wales has released the findings of an internal review of its operations during that event. A general manager of water planning and delivery, Ashley Webb, says the review presents an opportunity to improve communication and engagement with local communities. And we're going to have more about this on the Country Hour for you next week, but that full report can be found right now at waternewsouthwales.com.au if you want to go have a look. It's 25 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. Jenny Horvat, hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Selena, to you and your listeners. What's the story weather-wise? Look, it's the same story. We've got our ridge to the south, keeping everything pretty stable and mild down there. And we've got our broad area of low pressure across the north and west. Not quite as cloudy around southern um, parts today, but still a little bit on those far southern coasts. But expecting that part of the world to be relatively dry Again, um, I've got a lot of cloud around the western parts and the north of the state and we've already got some thunderstorms um, happening around southwestern parts of the northwest pastoral district at the moment. So it'll be the same sort of a setup across the north and west today. We are expecting to see those thunderstorms continuing throughout the day and picking up as we head into the afternoon and evening period. And again, our severe um, thunderstorm team are monitoring those storms and we'll potentially be having a severe thunderstorm warning issued again this afternoon and evening. Probably the most likely area will be in the northwest of the state, so looking likely to be more northwest of um, Cooperpedi for those um, stronger storms where we could see some heavy rainfall that could lead to some um, localised flash flooding, some damaging to destructive wind gusts and possibly some large to giant hail as well with some of those stronger storms. So we will be monitoring that as well and we're already seeing some closures with the outback roads so it doesn't take a lot of um, rainfall. So if you are up and about there just um, just check the, the um, Department of Transport website for those road closures um, if you are in the area or planning to travel in the area but more broadly um, we are expecting to see maybe those thunderstorms extending um, if I draw a line northwest of say roughly Streaky Bay to Moomba today but like I said with the greatest risk of the severe storms more in the northwest of the state. As we start the weekend our pattern continues with that ridge to the to the south um, and that broad area of low pressure still around on Saturday maybe starting to move a little bit more east so we'll start to see the, um, the chance of thunderstorms again maybe pushing to the eastern border so if I drew the line on Saturday we're looking at storms um, potentially northwest of a line roughly sort of Streaky Bay to Yunta and again more likely as we head up to the NT border and maybe again a risk of some severe storms on the Saturday um, looking at that risk maybe north of Cooperpedi um, on Saturday and maybe around the sort of Marla and Unadatta area but again they will be monitored and warnings will be issued as appropriate that um, trough starts to move away a little bit on Sunday, so I start to see those storms contracting more to the um, the northeast pastoral district on the Sunday, possibly pushing into the Flinders and 
the adjacent parts of the North West Pastoral District there. By Monday, we'll see them really just in the northeast of the, the state. And then that trough does kind of linger around in the northeast. So we'll see those storms maybe pushing across the, the far northeast into Tuesday, Wednesday, possibly even a Thursday and a Friday. Further south, still maintaining that ridge of high pressure and those milder south um, easterly airstream. Could see some very light um, shower activity on and off across our western and southern coast, but we're not expecting anything too significant. And as we head towards the end of the week, maybe that trough will start to come back in across the border, but we'll see how that goes for the end of the week. Having a look at some of the rainfall figures that we can expect cumulative up until midnight Tuesday, so generally about our southern coast, less than a, a couple of millimetres. Maybe we'll see about two to five millimetres over the Flinders and um, north east pastoral districts could see those totals increasing to 5 to 15 millimetres about our west coast and northwest pastoral districts and with those thunderstorms totals of 15 to 30 millimetres are likely and we could see some isolated totals with thunderstorms in excess of 50 millimetres not out of the question there all right thanks for that jenny have a great friday Thanks, Selena. Jenny Horvath there, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Quick look at the western inland of New South Wales. For tomorrow, the Upper Western District and the Lower Western District, both mostly sunny. For the Upper Western, there's also a slight chance of a shower in the north, near zero chance elsewhere, and the chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures down to around 14 to 19 degrees. Daytime temperatures in the low to high 30s. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon and happy National Agriculture Day. A wonderful day to thank I'll say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of Australians working in agriculture, more than 80% of those in our regional areas, who help keep the food and drinks on our table, help keep us clothed, and the myriad of other ways that agriculture helps us every day in our lives. The theme for National Ag Day is Grow You Good Thing. Love it. Uh, Coming up, you've heard about the proposed water buybacks out of the Murray-Darling system, but should the government be looking at water leasebacks? More on that in just a moment. And feral deer, they are a massive problem. Is it possible for South Australia to eradicate them in the next decade? South Australia still has this opportunity to eradicate deer. We finally have a plan that actually looks at over the next 10 years, let's get rid of this feral species from uh, the South Australian landscape. More on that soon as well. But first, Matt Coleman is here with news. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the Police Commissioner Grant Stevens says the officer fatally wounded in the state southeast last night was 53-year-old Brevet Sergeant Jason Doig. He's the officer in charge of the Lucendale Police Station. His fellow officer, Sergeant Michael Hutchinson, suffered non-life-threatening injuries during the exchange of gunfire on a property at Senior late last night. 
The World Health Organization is warning the conditions at Gaza's main hospital are deteriorating as Israel continues its military operation inside the facility. Israel says it found weapons in a tunnel shaft inside the Al-Shifa hospital. Hamas has dismissed that as lies. And the CEO of Optus says more than 200 triple zero calls were not able to be made during the telco's national outage last week. Optus landlines and some mobile phones could not dial triple zero during the blackout. Under Australian law, telcos are required to provide customers with the ability to make emergency calls. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. A water buybacks. Even if done voluntarily, voluntarily, I should say, it's dividing irrigators in the Murray-Darling Basin. But what if water licences were leased to the federal government instead of sold? It's a solution that's been floated by industry groups as a bill to amend the Water Act and Basin Plan is before Parliament as we speak. Our Professor Simon Maddox is Chair of Primary Producers of South Australia and I asked him how this idea of leasebacks originated. So I guess it began with me contemplating that it was probably inevitable that some package of buybacks was going to be prosecuted as a means of trying to increase the bankable component of river flows for environmental and river river recovery purposes. But I was certainly conscious that it was creating a lot of concern in communities and the potential flow-on effects if too many buybacks come out of one area, the consequences on collateral businesses and other, other parts of community systems could be quite significant. At the same time, the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and others are looking at more modelling to try to better understand the social, economic and environmental impacts of a whole range of strategies at improving um, delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So the concept in my head was that buybacks are a pretty sort of final decision once the water's bought and goes back into the into into the government bank. That that sort of the decision is done and dusted. But it seems to me that maybe in the first instance, the idea of leasing water from the current license owners, so the government leases the water first. You can all like. Like any lease, you can always build into the lease the first right of opportunity to purchase at the end of the lease. But it would be a strategy that would allow us to, as a community, as a nation, (laughs) bank water for the environmental purposes, but at the same time test whether or not we were having unanticipated consequences on taking volumes of water out of productive purposes in particular regions. So it would allow you to sort of have a stepwise transition as you support those communities to transition out of irrigation-based practices or other water uses um, that, that use water for production purposes, make sure we weren't having any unintended consequences and then potentially move to have those leases purchased. So it's just, it's just an idea of trying to have a stepwise transition rather than a, a pretty precipitous move to, to purchase and take water out of production. So I think what you've floated a, say, a five-year lease period, uh, do you reckon that would be enough time to, to see what the consequences would be? Well, I think like, like any of these things, I've, I've picked a number out of the air. It seems to me you, need a, you probably need at least five years to start to understand what's going on. There's no reason leases couldn't be extended. But I would have thought, you know, five years is a good place to start. It, it may be that the government has a range, does some five and some ten years. I, like I think, I think these are design purposes that could be workshopped to make sure that there's a, 
an understanding of a good of a good position, but it's at least putting the idea on the table is what I've been trying to do. Mm. I mean, is this because you have a, an opposition to voluntary buybacks, or is it more just about uh, you know looking at some of the potential consequences of of that, and as you say, going in perhaps a, a softer option to begin with? Yeah, look, I, I'm just trying to be pragmatic. I mean, PPSA, Primary Producer South Australia, has a very clear policy position that. It wants to see full implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and the outcomes that it aims to achieve. And PPSA's position has been to support measures that improved, that deliver improved production and environmental co-benefits. We're not opposed to voluntary participation by willing sellers in government water recovery programs such as buybacks, but where irrigation communities are negatively affected by buybacks, there need to be regional adjustment packages developed to support economic and social transition. So that's the formal primary producer's SA position and I guess it was in that context I began to think about are there better ways of doing buybacks that are less you know, impactful in the short term before we're sure that we're getting some of this right and that we've got modelling to support the anticipated um, impacts that, that both the plan needs to achieve and that we don't want to negatively deliver on communities that might be impacted. And it was out of that that just seemed to me so this is this is a notion I've, I've put forward. It's not a formal PPSA position, but in trying to put other options on the table, it seemed to me that the government leasing water licences from current holders leaves some level of control in the community with current licence holders, allows those that do want to move out of using water for productive purposes to get an alternative income stream whilst they test their own decisions and at the same time allows the government to show that it is truly delivering water into a bank for environmental purposes. As you've uh, sort of floated this concept around to different industry groups, what kind of response have you had to the idea of, of leasebacks? I've had very positive response from everybody I've spoken to. I've spoken to uh, colleagues in other states and I've, I've spoken to a range of different producer groups and I think everybody can see that Something has to change and no one has yet come up with a scenario that says that won't work because of reason X, Y or Z. Um, so I think, you know, in trying to be constructive, in trying to be helpful, there's a lot of concern in communities that have seen historical practices cause pain where it wasn't intended. And I'm just trying to, again, facilitate discussion about what are other strategies that still get us in a timely manner to where we, need, we, we, we know we need to get to deliver the Murray-Darling plan but at the same time allow communities that might be impacted to feel at least they've got some contribution in, in the ongoing discussion to make sure that they don't suddenly find themselves in a, in a situation that they didn't anticipate or becomes economically unviable. It's, you know, I, I know that in parts of the Riverland, for example, if too much water is taken out of a given area, it will impact the viability of irrigation trusts and a whole range of other measures, let alone all the collateral businesses that support those areas. So I think... You know, as a state, we have an interest in making sure that some of these things are rolled out effectively, and it, this applies to communities in, along the entire Murray-Darling Basin. So I think it's it's a strategy that I'd like to see more effectively considered. I know that the uh, the Senate this week is considering those proposed changes to the plan um, and uh, the potential for buybacks to be included in that. Have you heard any appetite from government to consider uh, leasing as an option as well? I know the... Murray-Darling Basin Commission had looked at leases, but they were talking about possibly leasing water that they've purchased back to productive purposes, 
as I'm talking about the exact opposite, that in fact, before they purchase, they lease the water into an environmental bank first. I had the opportunity to um, present to the Senate inquiry into this legislation and certainly put this idea on the table in in that forum. So I, I hope that more people are thinking about the opportunity it might provide to get more positive engagement by people around some of their concerns. That's Professor Simon Maddox there, who is Chair of Primary Producers South Australia. Well, Ben Hazlitt is a fruit and nut grower at Murtho in northeast of Renmark. He told Eliza Berlage that there's a few proposals on the table. I've heard there's a, a couple of concepts around that. Uh, one of them's been worked up in uh, a lot of detail by Waterfine that involved government having a caveat over some grower water and then calling on that when required after they'd exhausted the water that they owned. So there is a detailed proposal out there that Waterfine have worked up on that that's quite interesting and I think worth looking at. I've also heard that um, potentially there's people asking that of the government's water that they currently own, that if they didn't require that they might lease that back into uh, production. There's obviously some challenges. High cost water means you need to grow high returning crops. High returning crops tend to be permanent crops, uh, not always, but tend to be. And those crops need uh, water security over long periods of time. So if there is going to be sort of a lease program, you need to understand how that works over a long period of time. Otherwise, you wouldn't invest in a uh, high value tree crop. So of those uh, different proposals at the moment, are there any that uh, seem more favourable to you? I think um, one of the big challenges uh, for the government is um, about deliverability and uh, one of the arguments at the moment is um, if you can't actually deliver that environmental water to the places it needs to go, whether it's because of um, a government issue or a channel issue of being able to get it there, then perhaps you shouldn't be buying it until you've worked that out. So potentially one of the benefits of a, um, a program where you lease that water from growers is that water is not taken out of the consumptive pool before they've worked out how to actually deliver it. Because once it's removed from the consumptive pool, it's gone forever and uh, gone from production forever. I'd, I'd say that really what we need to do is we need to make sure that as food producers need to do more is less, so too do the environmental watering programs, which we absolutely support. We know we need a healthy working river, but there should be innovation uh, that has to occur on everyone's part, not just a food producer's. Whether it's buybacks or leasebacks, as a food producer, do you have any concerns around taking water licences away from irrigators and what that means, not just for communities, but also for food production in Australia? I think the, the challenge here is that people actually have to understand the scale of what we're talking about. Just the 450 gigalitres uh, that's being talked about a lot at the moment, that is all of South Australia's irrigation production. And so we're talking about all the food produced and all the communities that rely on it. That's a very large area and a huge amount of money. So I guess as part of this whole process, I'd be just saying, are we thinking as a nation about our food and fibre production? What's the plan when you actually remove that extra water? And my big challenge is if you're not going to be able to use it properly, don't remove it until you understand how you can actually deliver it. So we really need to have some good innovation and I think innovation involves on how you get the water. It doesn't just have to be, all right, one answer, we just buy it. There has to be other things that we look at that actually make a really balanced system. It's a healthy working river, a system that we can produce food, have healthy communities and obviously have a healthy environment. 
Well, Inuk Fruits farm owner Ben Hazlitt, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage. Now, spokesperson for the Federal Department of Climate Change, Energy and the Environment and Water said in a statement that the government would continue to carefully and consultatively consider all options put forward through the recent consultation process, including leasebacks, to meet all water recovery targets, including for the 450 gigalitres of water for enhanced environmental outcomes. A statement said they encourage communities to support the amendments introduced through the Restoring Our Rivers Bill which would provide more time, flexibility and accountability to basin plan implementation and ensure the the use of the full range of tools to deliver the plan's outcomes. Uh, hello to Steve from Clare who's hopped on the text line. Steve says, no lease, no buybacks. Invest the money into local desalinated water that could meet agricultural needs. Steve said he believes the whole of South Australia could be taken off the Murray and transitioned to desalinated water. It's 15 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the South Australian government has set a target to wipe out the state's feral deer population in 10 years. It's outlined in a new 10-year strategic plan for the South Australian Feral Deer Eradication Program and it was released today. Feral deer are one of the country's worst pest animals, causing billions of environmental and agricultural damage, causing billions in environmental and agricultural damage, I should say, as well as increasing road hazard from what we're hearing as well. The South Australian plan has been welcomed by the Invasive Species Council. Jack Guff is its advocacy manager. Jack, welcome to the Country Hour. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. We've had previously a national plan for deer management. Now South Australia has released its own plan, and I understand South Australia is leading the way a bit here. Yeah, this is a really fantastic leadership and ambition from the South Australian government and Minister Scriven, Minister Close, they, they should be congratulated for taking this task on because we know that feral deer are one of the worst emerging uh, pest species that we have in Australia. We can just look over the border to Victoria and to New South Wales to see the enormous damage that they cause to agriculture, to our environment, the pressure they put on forestry, the pressure that they put on uh, sensitive ecosystems when they're allowed to get out of control. And South Australia still has this opportunity to eradicate deer. Uh, and too often when it comes to feral species, when it comes to um, pests and, other, and, and weeds and things, we see governments taking their time to make a decision, uh, not uh, dithering and delaying when it comes to actually doing the work that's needed to eradicate species so that they end up getting out of control and eradication is no longer possible. SA still has that chance. We finally have a plan that actually looks at over the next 10 years, let's get rid of this feral species from uh, the South Australian landscape. Because I know, I mean, here in South Australia, the, the numbers of uh, feral deer aren't great, but certainly compared to some other states, it's, it's not uh, certainly as bad. This plan is aiming to eradicate feral deer in South Australia in the next 10 years. Do you think that's an, an achievable target? Yeah, so there's about 40,000 feral deer at the moment in South Australia and we know that um, the, the, the climate modelling that's been done suggests that of the species of feral deer we've got in Australia, they could spread basically to the entire continent um, if they are not eradicated. So with that 40,000 deer, we know that with the control tools that are available that the South Australian government are already using, that it is possible to get on top of that population. You need to be taking out um, over... 
35% every year to stop that natural population growth. Um, but if they, if they are doing that, which they know that they can, then uh, we will see that population decline and, op- and ultimately get to that point where there are um, none or at least almost none left. The, I guess the key thing, though, is going to be the funding. Our understanding at the moment is that we've got about $1.1 million per year over four years dedicated to this, but that achieving this program will take about $14 million over that 10-year period, and you want the majority of that funding to be front-loaded, to be right up the front. So hopefully the next step from the South Australian government uh, will be that Minister Scriven, Minister Close, um, can, can get together with the Treasurer and ensure that there is an increase to the funding to meet the level of ambition within this plan. I understand there's also you're know, looking at um, increasing penalties or, or cracking down on those who are uh, releasing deer, whether it's on purpose or through negligence and them escaping because uh, eradication is all one thing, but preventing them getting out there in the first place. Do uh, you think that there needs to be more focus on that as well? Look, we know one of the uh, fastest ways that feral species move in the landscape has been through illegal release um, and also through people who've had um, deer farms, uh, uh, some of them not um, real deer farms, but um, uh, but being deer farms that they're essentially trying to get those deer into the landscape and then letting the fences down or where the market's collapsed and the fences have been let down. So we know that's definitely a pathway around Australia where deer have been um, getting into areas. It's really disgusting behaviour, actually. It's it's selfish and it's, um, uh, you know, it's putting at risk our agriculture. It's putting at risk um, our environment for, for selfish means. So that's something that should be cracked down on. But it's not the only way that deer spread. And I think this is the something that's really important is even when we do eradicate deer in South Australia, if the government put the funds in and we actually get there, um, there will need to be constant vigilance from the community, constant vigilance from the government and resources there able to quickly get on top of that population if there are reintroductions or if they start coming across the border from uh, Victoria or New South Wales. So this is, um, with with these things, when the numbers are low, um, it's always much less money to keep them out and uh, much easier to, to get on top of the eradication than if you let it out of control. But constant vigilance, constant engagement with the community um, is necessary to, to maintain that status. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not game over after 10 years uh, for the South Australian government, unfortunately. Jack Goff, thank you very much for joining us on The Country Hour. Thank you very much. Jack Goff, Advocacy Manager with the Invasive Species Council. And you're with Selena Green on the Country Hour this afternoon. Well, wool growers have voted in three new directors to the Board of Marketing and Research Company Australian Wool Innovation. George Millington is the director and owner of Collinsville Stud Merinos here in South Australia. He's going to join Emma Weston, CEO of AgriDigital, a leader in digital innovation based on her family farm in Warren of New South Wales, and WA Merino producer Neil Jackson. The new, I should say, the new board will have to address some significant challenges, which were outlined at the AGM, which was held in Sydney today, as Josh Becker reports. Chairman of Australian Wool Innovation and Walcott Wool Grower, Jock Laurie, told farmers at the annual general meeting in Sydney, it's a challenging outlook for the wool industry. It's been a very challenging year, I would say, in many areas. Uh, it all depends where you are in Australia. Most certainly in Western Australia, there have been some. Uh, issues in regard to a range of um, a range of decisions, and that's uh, taken a lot of confidence out of the market in Western Australia. There's absolutely no doubt about that, and I think that's had a and has been uh, reflected right across Australia in many ways. It's uh, the, the dismantling, I suppose, of confidence in the industry over there 
I think is the disappointing part. I know people are, uh, have a lot of options when it comes to uh, which agricultural enterprises they can and need to use within their business. Uh, and a lot of them are considering that at the moment, taking into consideration where the, the industry is, where the protein industry is, not just wool, where the protein industry is, and you know how they want that mix or how they want that balance of mix in their properties. A lot of people I've discussed are seriously thinking about uh, the future and where they want to do and how much, for instance, how much wool they want to go. So it's been a challenging time over there. Uh, on the eastern seaboard, there's many areas that have slipped into a, uh, a pretty strong uh, drought in many cases, and that's also challenging people in the industry. And, and the historic highs on the meat market to come back to where they uh, are at the moment has made it very difficult. The grain prices, when it comes to making decisions around feeding, have made it very difficult. Uh, and I think the industry um, has uh, is really starting to focus on on the value of what's happening. One of the things that we're getting um, on a regular basis is I think people that are involved in the wool industry and can see clearly the reduction in the EMI from where it is down and now at about 1150 Scotty or there somewhere abouts, um, compared to where some of the protein prices have gone, then wool's really showing its real value at the moment uh, and how it can be a sort of balancing factor in a lot of enterprises. So in some ways it's, it's, uh, it's very good for us, but in other ways the other component of the industry I think is really being tested. AWI CEO John Roberts highlighted wool production is in decline in WA and cost of living pressures are even biting for European consumers in the luxury market. The revenue for the company is in decline, which is a reflection of the broader wool market, but it's 64% of what AWI earned four years ago. The levy-funded organisation has drawn on $17 million from the company reserves to fill the gap, funding shearer training and additional marketing for the eco-credentials of Australian wool. That said, production has risen in f 22 23 and we're on track to exceed 345 million kilos. The Australian Wool Forecasting Committee uh, doesn't expect that, that, that uh, growth to continue or the flo- in the flock size or the wool clip, and we, we, we think there'll be a moderate correction next year on the back of challenging conditions, particularly in the broader wool and meat sheep sector. If we move down to production by state, percentages have not shifted a great deal. You can see that New South Wales is still the largest production state. But interestingly now, Victoria is the second um, largest production state ahead of uh, Western Australia. We expect that um, Western Australian percentages are going to come under some more pressure in the coming years as the impact of the pending live export ban and ongoing shearing challenges continue to c- confront those, those, those wool growers. In terms of wool price, you can see here that um, prices um, have struggled over the last 16 months. You're all aware of it, you're all feeling it. Um, we enjoyed a reasonably uh, unexpected uh, celebration period in Europe and the US straight after COVID. And that was, that was a nice rally. Um, we saw the same thing as China came out of COVID, another, another what we called a celebration period earlier in the year. But sadly, they were, were short-lived and, um, we, and we're now seeing ourselves flatlining while we wait for some sort of sign of positivity coming at, at a retail level, which we think is a fair way off at the moment. Whilst the luxury sector you know, consumer is usually more immune to, to some of the economic downturn, it seems that the current cost of living uh, and general concerns about macroeconomic situations, geopolitical tensions are really starting to even impact that, that, that sector at the moment and they're being much more cautious about their expenditure. WA-based Steve Maguire and New South Wales-based Edward Storey, the former head of Wool Producers Australia, were both unsuccessful in their campaign for a spot on the board.
Josh Becker with that report. And finally today, Australia's hazelnut industry is reeling from the news that the Ferrero Group is giving up on a $70 million investment to grow the nut in southern New South Wales. The Italian confectionery company behind brands like Ferrero Rocher, Nutella and Kinder Surprise, they planted a million trees near Narunda, but it's now ripping them out and putting the property up for sale, as Emily Doak reports. When the Australian arm of the Ferrero Group launched its $70 million hazelnut production venture in the Riverina a decade ago, it was lauded as a shot in the arm for the local industry. A million trees were planted by 2018, but the company says yields have fallen below expectations, making the project no longer commercially viable. Executive Officer of Hazelnut Growers of Australia, Trevor Ranford, is disappointed the trees are being pushed out. Extremely disappointed, not only for you know the industry in general, but certainly for all of those uh, people that have been employed and engaged in building uh, such a uh, impressive uh, orchard and business. Uh, so you know a lot of hard work and uh, toil and uh, an effort went into it. But uh, you know the decisions are being made by uh, people uh, who own the business outside of Australia and uh, you know, they're making those decisions on uh, you know, return on investment and uh, I suppose the current uh, climatic uh, or environmental uh, and financial uh, situations uh, that exist in the world at the present moment. Selling agent Matt Childs from CBRE expects the 2,600 hectare property with more than 11,000 megalitres of water entitlements will fetch more than $80 million. And he says the fact that it's free of hazelnut trees is an advantage. Sometimes these buyers would need to uh, go and remove those trees themselves, which is a significant investment just in doing that, uh, and also a significant amount of time to prepare the land so that it's ready for that new planting. So this is all being fast-tracked. It's being offered as a reversion opportunity, as in the land has been reverted from hazelnut trees back to a, a you know a black uh, irrigated platform but not to mention also installation of the irrigation infrastructure takes time as well. Uh, you expect that it, it's going to be um, of interest for permanent horticulture plantings. Is there much interest and what's the market like in that sector at the moment in your experience? Um, we're still a few weeks away from knowing the end result, but so far we're pretty satisfied with how it's performing. I mean, there's parts of the agribusiness market at the moment that are struggling, especially around livestock and those operators, but it seems like the institutional and corporate space, particularly around horticulture and particularly with strong and reliable um, irrigation water entitlements, that part of the market still has quite a bit of strength. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia says while the exit of Ferrero from growing nuts locally is a blow, there's still potential for the Australian industry to grow and fill gaps in supply. As the other uh, producers uh, increase, then uh, maybe their volumes uh, can be utilised uh, by uh, Ferrero uh, in, in their processing facilities. And you know, I think the important thing is that um, some of the genetic material that uh, they brought into uh, and, and planted within that orchard has been distributed uh, uh, through their nursery to, to other growers uh, around Australia. So um, you know, there's that opportunity to see uh, you know, ongoing expansion of those uh, varieties that uh, were considered uh, uh, you know, most valuable uh, for their confectionery-type business. 
Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia ending that report from Emily Doak. And you can read more about that on the website ABC Rural, abc.net.au forward slash rural. A lot of great uh, stories you can catch up on there right now. Uh, quickly, let me get to a couple of texts that have come through. We're talking about feral deer. One text that's come through, no name, but it says, let's get the population of kangaroos down as well, says this text. Are they doing more damage than deer in our area? And Jim from Somerton Park asked, well, he said over 70 years ago there was talk of diverting northern rivers through the dividing range into the Murray-Darling system. Jim's wondering if any more thought has been given to that. Thank you so much for your company on the Country Hour today and throughout all this week. You can catch up more on the website abc.net.au, rural, I should say, on the ABC Listen app. I've been Selena Green and I'll be back with you on Monday for more Country Hour. It's news time, one o'clock. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.